Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story. On today's episode, we're going to learn more about Downton Abbey, both some of the TV series and, of course, the movie as well. As you probably already know, if you're a fan of Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey is the fictional name for the very real High Clear Castle. To help us separate fact from fiction, I'm honored to be joined by none other than the Countess of Carnarvon. Not only does Lady Carnarvon live in and take care of Highclere Castle with her husband, the 8th Earl of Carnarvon, but she's also written numerous books on the real history of Highclere. Before we get Lady Carnarvon on the line, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, there have been royal visits to Highclere Castle like we see in the movie. Number two, the Crawley family in the TV series are based on real people. Number three, there really was someone named Bates at Highclere. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to get Lady Carnarvon on the line to chat about the history behind Downton Abbey. Before we dive into some details, I'm always curious how those who are intimately familiar with the real history feel when they first see how filmmakers try to recreate that history. Overall, how well do you think Downton Abbey did capturing the essence of the early 20th century at Highclere Castle? I think they were capturing the essence of a a costume drama and a family life at the time. It's not a history documentary and it didn't pretend to be so. It was something which everybody much enjoyed. And it was a fictional family living in a apparently fictional house, though in fact Highclere, which has layers of history. So it's it's like it's not a straightforward answer, but it's fascinating. Well, you find it fascinating. That's a good step, though. Yes, well, I think real history is utterly fascinating, and I think something like Downton engages and perhaps will send people behind to find out about what really happened, what life was really like, and they'll do it with their eyes of of enjoyment on Downton Abbey and perhaps research some of the momentous um, events through which our predecessors lived. And that that leads right into my next question, actually, because obviously, you know, we all know that movies and TV shows change the names. And you mentioned Downton Abbey not being a real place, but it is based on uh, Highclere, which is, you know, the real place. And you also mentioned that the Crawley family in Downton Abbey is not real, but who really was living there in the early 20th century? The Edwardian times, it was really the most extraordinary couple who did bestride the world stage. It was the fifth Earl and Countess of Carnarvon. And they were there in Edwardian times, in fact, welcoming royalty and extraordinary people from the aeronautical business or Egyptology from around the world. Almina was, in fact, an heiress, but a, a great heiress because her dowry was one of cash not entailment. And it was of an extraordinary, um, significant 
size as well. So in today's terms, it was probably about, you know, um, 40 or 50 million dollars, which was a wonderful dowry to have um, stacked in the Bank of Rothschild. So that was the real dowry of the time. And her husband was an Egyptologist, passionate about Egypt in the, the pharaonic Egypt in the 18th dynasty. And he was the one who, after the end of the First World War, would um, discover the tomb of Tutankhamun with his colleague Howard Carter. So that was his story, which follows an amazing line. And actually, that's the next book upon which I'm embarking to write. And his wife, Almina, I've already written about. And she's an extraordinary woman who turned Highclere into a proper hospital in the First World War. Downton Abbey was a convalescent home. In real life, it was something far more and far more significant to many people's lives. And it was also significant because she welcomed strangers to Highclere, people she didn't, men she didn't know, someone's husband, someone's brother, someone's son, someone's grandson. And she nursed them for weeks or months and made them better. What is scary, in fact, is that often they then returned to the trenches of the First World War. So her gift and contribution to other people's lives was immense. And there was a proper operating theatre at Highclere. And that's the book I wrote about that time, which has sold in many languages now around the world and is a good metaphor for how I, I think we try to live here. What can we do to help others? During World War One, I, I got this sense that the, the chaos of the war outside definitely seeped its way into Highclere there as well. Um, can you speak kind of what it was like almost on a, on a day-to-day basis there during World War One? There wasn't chaos at all at Highclere. You can't run a hospital in any sort of chaos. It was very well organized with 30 nurses, a doctor, an operating theater, some of the best surgeons of the country coming down to operate on a Monday, visiting days on Saturdays. It was a really well-organized house, and it was regarded as one of the most outstanding military hospitals. And Almina is another Florence Nightingale, so far from it. And then she also set up a hospital in London as well, given the number of patients returning from the war. So whilst 100,000 men might be embarking for the trenches of the First World War every month, another 25,000 were returning, battered, half-dead to England every single month. So it was an extraordinary and devastating time for many families. And I think Armina's contribution, as I said, was remarkable. And at the end of the First World War, um, she was exhausted and then they were combating the flu. So, so what a four or five years to survive and what a gift she gave. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even think about the flu after just on the heels of the war and how that must have affected everybody there as well. Yes. Completely and utterly. So, so I, I don't think it was actually. I mean, I think she, she had a tremendous organizational bent. And I suspect she had little patience sometimes because she had so much to do. And she then often took the patients back. So in the archives here are four or five hundred letters from those patients or from their mothers. You know, there's one from a mother, a Canadian mother saying, Dear Lady Carnarvon, I am thousands of miles from my son at a time of his life I'd most like to be by his side. But your letters and telegrams of reassurance give me the hope that I may yet see him again. And I and other mothers of Canada will be in debt to you for the rest of our lives. And it's wonderful to think there are women such as you in England doing what they can for our sons. Wow, that's an amazing letter to receive. 
Earlier, you mentioned royal visits, and that is a big part of the movie's storyline. It talks about King George V and Queen Mary coming to visit Downton Abbey. And you alluded to that earlier. So would I be correct in assuming that King and Queen really have visited? Yeah, no, Highclere has been very blessed and welcomed the wife of George II, Queen Caroline, in the 18th century. Um, I think Queen Victoria came to the fourth earl's the fifth the fourth earl's funeral. <laughs> um, Edward the seventh came. We've also got the signatures of George the fifth and Queen Mary, the Duke of Kent, and obviously the current royal family. And my my husband's grandmother is the Queen of England. So there's been many um, extraordinary royal stories to share through the ages, for real. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One of the things I was really curious about, too, that movie focuses on during that visit is there's a lot of preparations that the, the servants are making for the royal visit, but then there's conflict between the royal staff and the staff at Downton. Has there ever been that sort of conflict that we saw in the movie between the staff trying to prepare for a royal visit? No, not at all. I mean, there is a lot of planning and preparation, and I told the story of that through a royal visit in 1895, and the royal family are are the guests of the fifth countess and they they never come with their butlers or footmen they come with their lady's maid or valet but they are your guests it's your house it's your staff and everyone takes great pride which is true in doing their best and serving delicious food and making the visit work well one key plot point in the movie revolves around Maud Bagshaw's character. She's the queen's lady in waiting in the movie. And Maggie Smith's character, the Dowager Countess, they don't agree on who should inherit Maud's estate. And then through all this, we find out that Maud had an illegitimate daughter named Lucy, who she has kept a secret by hiding her in plain sight as her maid. And 
instead of trying to change Maud's mind, Violet then tries to get Tom Branson and Lucy to marry so the two households are united. Was there anything from history that sort of resembles this storyline that we see in the movie? No, not really. I mean, I've gone back um, to the, I know quite a lot about the Victorian times and the Edwardian times and the fifth Earl encounters had two children, a boy and a girl, and the boy became the sixth Earl. Um, and Lady Evelyn um, married very happily Sir Brograve Beecham and was often here and often staying at this house throughout her life. And then the sixth Earl again had um, my father-in-law and uh, daughter Penelope. So much more straightforward, I suppose. <laughs> but what isn't straightforward is is how you keep these extraordinary stately homes of England going. How what is their role today? What is their character? And what is the point of them to some extent? So that is a question that my husband and I have sought to answer from when we took over. That's actually something that they talked about briefly towards the end of the movie. I think it was Lady Mary who was questioning whether, you know, Downton, when it was built, it was built for a different time and that time doesn't exist anymore. For those of us who are fans of the movie and TV series have gotten familiar with Downton Abbey during that time period, can you share some of the ways that Highclere today has changed since the early 20th century? Well, it's had to change enormously because it was once a private house and it had, you know, 14 footmen, three butlers, chefs. It had a very large, you know, domestic service element looking after the family here. And there was quite large agricultural and coal mining incomes, which no longer exist. So it's had to change to think, what is a stately home? And in a sense, the Second World War, I wrote another book about taking Highclere through to the end of the Second World War, was the fundamental shift change step for all the stately homes in England. And after the end of the Second World War in the 1950s, 1,000 stately homes were demolished. So there are far fewer left than there were. And then going through the succeeding decades, it's been for each one to find, as it goes from a private to a home which is shared with the public, what its role is and how it can carve out a niche for itself and something with which to engage people. So that was exactly the questions, really, that Geordie, my husband, and I were asking each other when it was our turn to pick, pick up the battle. One thing you mentioned earlier was uh, Lady Almina. And when I was reading the book, I couldn't help but notice a character that's mentioned in the movie. So I have to ask, uh, that's Mr. Bates. Is that who he's based on? Is there a real person kind of behind that? <laughs> no, I just thought it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure it's not, but I just couldn't resist it. There I had a Mr. Bates and Julian Fellows had a Mr. Bates. So, so, so it was just amazing. And I think my Mr. Bates, I think he might have lost a leg too. I can't quite remember now, but it, I just couldn't believe it when I, when I picked up the letters. So. That was just, a, I'm sure, complete coincidence. But some things are meant to be. So, you know, you run with it, don't you? Yeah, for sure. Were there any other characters that were similar to that that just coincidentally happened to fall in, in line with the characters that we see in the series? I wrote the book actually in about two and a half, three months. And I, I was simply working from the backbuilding and scaffolding of the real history and the real battles. And then all the letters and diaries and detail I had. And I had absolutely no time to focus on anything other than the key stories which kind of flowed my way. And I then 
delivered it on time because I wanted it to come out when Downton went to war. So it was a, a very key delivery date for publication. And in some ways, it, 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 it was written from my heart with not a huge time to edit. And for that reason, I, I think it worked. I think people read it as I wrote it and enter into that world. Going back to the movie, one of the more tense parts that we see is while the king and queen are visiting Downton, Tom, the character of Tom, stops an attempt on the king's life. Was there any sort of attempt on the life of royalty near uh, Highclere like that? No, not at all, actually. I mean, um, George V was in the hole, much, much liked and respected. And there's nothing that I, that the more troublesome times, if you like, with the Irish tended to be when at, at home rule in the sort of 1880s. And then again in 1916, 17, rather than when this film is set sort of 10, 11 years later. So it's, um, I mean, there's always little bits of nationalism in the background, but the more tense times with Irish home rule and the country of Ireland were a little bit earlier. Speaking of Tom, there was his character arc is one that I wanted to ask you about because he goes from he starts off in the beginning of the series as a chauffeur and then he becomes the son-in-law of Lord Grantham when he marries Lady Sybil. And then, according to the series, Lady Sybil passes away in a tragic accident. Hopefully I'm not spoiling it for anybody. That happened quite a long time ago in the series. <laughs> but then by the timeline of the movie, Tom still hasn't recovered from the death of his wife. But he does start to fancy Lucy, who we mentioned earlier. And she's interested in him, too, because he can understand what it's like to rise from a chauffeur into aristocracy and something that's she's assuming is going to happen to her as she gains the inheritance. Is there anybody from the real history that took that same sort of a, a path that we see Tom Branson do in the series and movie? No, I mean, I think it was more unusual in the First World War, but it was a very you know useful device for Julian and it produced some great storylines. I think things like that were more prevalent during the Second World War because it was really during the Second World War that all the national resources, all the Society of England was was nationalized for one purpose, which was the conduct of the war. So everyone was rationed, everyone was in the same boat. So Winston Churchill, a very aristocratic prime minister, effectively nationalized all of our resources and put us all on one footing together. And that was a more likely scenario, though I don't know of any such stories here, but in the First World War, the um, um, differentiation between what you did and who you served was still probably more defined. What's one of your favorite stories from the real history that fans who are only familiar with the TV series and movie would be surprised to learn? I don't know about surprised. I mean, I think there are so many rich history, layers of history at Highclere. I mean, in the I wrote a book called At Home at Highclere, and I picked up four different weekends because I thought that was such a great line of Maggie Smith's What's a Weekend? From our point of view at Highclere, we're normally working, I have to say, but um, because it's when we're open to the public. But that particular book looked at a weekend with statesmen, one with royalty, one with Henry James Literary, and one with music, Malcolm Sargent, who was one of our leading um, composers and conductors in the 30s. And the first weekend led me to an incredibly surprising discovery, being the 
creation of the Dominion of Canada, which was conducted much of it here at Highclere, 1866 to 67, which involved Charles Adams from America, whose father and grandfather were president of the USA and the founding fathers of Canada. So I find things like that extraordinary and named in the visitor's book, amazing. And when you go through and you find Geoffrey de Havilland, who began the, you know, was one of the first men to fly in this country, it's a little bit after the Wright brothers, Charles Rolls, Rolls-Royce, Henry James, Howard Carter, the Duke of Kent, you know, well, King George V, Queen Mary, Winston Churchill, General Patton. So these are the real people. So I think the richness with which Highclere has welcomed people, that always never fails to humble me and make me think of all the different people who've passed through Highclere. But equally, you know, there's been a home here since um, for 1,200 years. So some of my earliest written records are in the late Saxon times. And again, I think that helps me personally find an anchor in life, an anchor of people who've walked in time and space here before me. It's a fascinating list of people throughout history, and it's got to be I think the way you put it, it's you know humbling to to walk the same same walls as as some of those names in history. It is amazing, and I know that behind one fireplace is a medieval fireplace. Um, you know, I found the foundations of a palace here from 1360. I walk across the fields and I can see the remains of a courtyard. It it is extraordinary, and I I find it actually gives me a sense of peace, and I think and of longevity in a world which seems quite fragmentary and quite challenging at the moment. Have there been a lot of renovations? You mentioned fragments of other parts throughout history. There have been a lot that's been changed over the years? What, since 749? Well, <laughs> fair point, fair point, fair point. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yes, but nothing's been completely demolished. It's just been added on to change, redeveloped, transformed, often old walls left and new walls clad. So it's just been adapted. And, you know, and I, I'm not sure what that we've changed necessarily. So rather than knock everything down and restart, I think it's a question of looking and seeing, observing and carrying on. When you're doing updates like that, do you try to capture the way they were originally or do you put this century's spin on it? I don't know what I would where the originality is. So within the saloon, the heart of the castle, which in Danton is called the Great Hall, that was a medieval dining hall, you know, in, say, the 11th century, 12th century, 14th century. I don't know. I think it was still there, the remains of, in the 18th century. So you're, you're looking back and remembering. You're um, acknowledging in different aspects, perhaps from how you dispose the paintings, how you as as in dispose on the walls rather than sell them. Um, how you how you you know create a atmosphere, what you're trying to highlight. So I suppose that's what I bear in mind. And when I am decorating the house and the bedrooms, or and I've done quite a lot of decoration because it has to work today. And I'm thinking about the Charles Barry. It's a huge masculine castle today, created by Charles Barry, who's creating the Houses of Parliament in 1842. So he was the author of the of the last transformation, and it's I'm conscious of him sitting on my shoulder and the the sense of of history. So when I'm decorating, I have definitely got 
that Victorian spirit, I suppose, in mind. But yet I want it to be something I like today and is working today. And of course, we do have lights, not candles, and, <laughs> and um, um, which makes a huge difference. And a little bit of some, a few, a little bit of heating here and there, but not a lot. So it's with many thoughts in my mind when I'm looking into each room. But each time I do it, I have learned so much from doing the ones before and from the experience that it's amazing. You mentioned it's, it's open on the weekends, correct? It's open. The many weekends are when we end up opening because that's when more people are likely to have the time to come. I'm sure you get a lot of people talking about Downton Abbey when you visit, <laughs> when they visit. What's one of the more common questions that you keep answering over and over? I don't really know that there is one in particular. I mean, I think it is Highclere Castle. It's far bigger in some ways than Downton Abbey. There's 250 to 300 rooms. In Downton Abbey, you see some of them. And it's bigger in terms of the landscape, the park, the fencing, the history and the time. So it's a wonderful model when people come. If it brings them here, 80% then choose to go to the Egyptian exhibition, reflecting the fifth earl's history and the discovery of Tutankhamun. A lot of people enjoy the gardens, which again are very much the gardens of Geordie's and mine. And now there's a good hour's walk um, pottering around the gardens, which again are more highly, if you like, than Downton, although bits of them have been used in Downton. But it's the scale there sometimes which is hard to traverse because normally, you know, a scene is at least 30 seconds long, <laughs> if you like, and you can see a little bit of it. So it, it's not actually, it's as many questions about one or another. And often they're saying, you know, usually it's what's it like to live in a castle? One thing I, I, I'm really curious about that, that it's funny, as I was preparing for this, my sister in law, Heather, she's a huge fan. And she sent me an article from Vanity Fair that mentioned that the Queen liked to watch the TV series and point out things that they got wrong. <laughs> so I, I have to ask, have you ever had conversations with the Queen about the real history? Oh, my goodness. The Queen has, was a longstanding friend of my father-in-law, so she would know the history <laughs> from my father-in-law. So it's a little bit different. <laughs> So have you learned some of the history from her then? No, 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 I wouldn't. I mean, it's, that's really not how it works either. So, so, but, you know, my, she has known my father, she knew my father-in-law since, you know, since they were 16 or 17 years old. So, and it, it perhaps it's been a wonderful place to escape to away from other people's eyes. Earlier, you mentioned that during the time of, of Downtown Abbey in the early 20th century, Things were a little d different and there was more staff there. How do you think that they did portraying the the servants and that side of the series? I think there was interreaction, which they, which they did clearly show upstairs and downstairs. But it's the same as today. You know, Diana, our head housekeeper, is is a huge friend. I'm still Lady Carnarvon. She's still Diana. Or when things going wrong for her or not for right not right for me i'd hope i'd be the her first to give her an enormous hug as she would to me so there's it, it is a big community today and it was then in the time of the edwardian times as well when downton abbey started so it's about community family support and highclere has been a community and it's been in business for 1200 years at least so there's some clear things clearly that we're getting right yeah for sure now, if you put yourself in the director's chair, was there anything after you watched this, either the series or the movie that you wish they had done differently? 
I learned that they were a film crew and they were creating a costume drama. So just not to, so therefore I was going to chill about it. It's not a documentary. <laughs> it's not a documentary and that's not what it's about. And it's, um, and so, you know, there's, I, so that's, that's how I approached it. Were there any parts that you were happy that they, they did include? No, I, I honestly don't think like that at all. You know, I, I just don't worry about it. I, I think there's more activity outside on the land. These houses need people outside than perhaps is shown. So I think that's a little bit different. And, you know, Julian and Emma Fellows have stayed with me. I asked them down to watch a cricket match. So that was great. They put a cricket match in it. They obviously, you know, some of, we have concerts here. We, we, we dance here. So some of that comes through in different ways, different portrayals, but you know, they know how it works for us. So they do it the same. We have Christmas here. They put the Christmas tree in the same place. So it's just things like that, I guess. Thank you so much for your time to chat about The Real Downton Abbey. I know you've written multiple books on the real stories. Can you give us a little bit more insights into the books that you've written and where people can pick up a copy? The books seem to continue on. So the first history book I wrote, because I've written books about Egyptology before, but they're slightly different, I guess. <laughs> but the first history book was called Lady Almina and the Real Downton Abbey. And it still has such meaning for me. It looks at the Edwardian period and the royal visit of 1895. And it takes this couple through and this part of the world through into the outbreak of the First World War and the, those years of the First World War and how it affected the people, the gardeners from Heikler who went out to fight in Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq, but not all of them came back. Those who fought in the trenches through the men who came back from the trenches to be nursed. And then it's the subplot is about the Tutankhamun and Egyptian excavations, which were did not take place obviously during the First World War, but then picked up again after the First World War, which then led to the final part of the book, which is the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun and treasure and tragedy. So that's that book, which I thoroughly enjoyed writing, and it still forms part of many talks that I give, and it forms part of the basis of many events we hold today in terms of thinking for others. So if Downton Abbey, the series, looks in on a house, I hope it's a house, we look out for what we can do for other people. And after that book, people wrote to me, said, what happens next? So I then wrote from 1922, again, the tragedy of the death of the fifth Earl in Cairo, to the 20s and the, the, the Gatsby period, if you like, the jazz bands and the incredibly glamorous life here with the royals who came to visit, the dancing, the gramophones, the singing, the parties, through to the 30s and then through into the outbreak of the Second World War and how that affected Highclere. And it ends with plane crashes and things like that, which... Um, I want to pick up in VE Day this coming year, 75 years since the end of the Second World War, because a B-17, amongst other planes, crashed into the hill just through accident behind Highclere three days before the end of the Second World War. And these young American men died. So it's a thank you and a tribute to them to remember their names and to say thank you. So many of the books then spur me on to see what we can do today to raise money for those who serve and save, whether they be American or English, French or German. It's bringing people together. 
So those are the two history books. And then I've written a book, At Home at Highclere, which I wanted to share. It's a beautiful coffee table book with recipes and food because food is at the heart of life here. What are we going to have to eat to welcome people here? Sunday lunch, evening dinner parties. It's some of the menus collected here over the last century and a half, I suppose. And four weekends and how we live in a castle today. And then I followed that up with a book just published now, Christmas at Highclere, which again is Christmas with a traveler arriving here in 800 AD to spend Christmas, to what it's like to spend Christmas today, to what we eat, how we cook, the recipes, to thinking about the whole journey we all make towards Christmas, to the feast at the middle of it. And then the journey on after it towards New Year and what that meant and the oft forgotten celebration of Epiphany and how and then candle mass and lighting a hope, lighting a candle in hope for the spring. So with poems and recipes and traditions and ghost stories, I hope that will amuse people in the coming years and as well as this year. And I'm then obviously beginning my next book as well. So once you've done one, the publisher says, what's the next? What's next? (laughs) But, you know, I enjoy it. And I write a blog every Monday and that's now shared and read by thousands of people. And I enjoy doing the Instagram. And for us, the social media is a way of sharing an extraordinary home, which we're lucky and it's a privilege to live in. And there's always some degree of responsibility in looking after it for those who visit and those who wish to visit or live here in the future. I had no idea that there was a, a bomber that went down so close to, to the house. Was Has there ever been any damage to the house through the wars? In the Second World War, for sure. And in fact, on this estate, I have found since the remains of Two mosquitoes, a Lysander, a Whitley, a B-17, a P-38, a Proctor, and I think I've one more yet to find. So these are stories of people, through, of young men, through which I can tell some of the stories of the Second World War. And I've, we've built a cedarman here. We've carved a cedarman. A friend of mine is a wonderful wood sculptor, and he's carved a, scu- a sculpture of an airman out of a cedar tree which fell over and I've put it in the middle of the garden so as people go for walks in the summer in the spring he's there and he's looking up he's standing facing the hills and he's looking back smiling at us because he's about to get in his Ferrari in the sky and fly and of course underneath him is some of what he became because he didn't come back and the names of the men who died here are engraved in boards around the bottom, so bottom of the sculpture, and the benches behind it are carved a little bit like wings. So that's where people can sit and think, which is a good thing to do, reflection and thought. So that's part of the stories I want to share on May the 8th, 2020, and have a speaker's tent and a few old planes flying again, to remember and say thank you to what all of our ancestors went through for those years and not forget what they did. Thank you so much for doing that. For I mean, that's not something that anybody would, would put a lot of effort into, I think. And it's, it's, it says a lot that you're willing to, to do that, to remember those stories and to keep their memories alive and to say thank you to them. So thank you for doing that. No problem. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming on and and talking about The Real Downtown Abbey. I've learned a lot. And I'll make sure to add the links to your books in the show notes for this episode as well. You are so, so kind. It's been a joy. Thank you very, very much. This 
This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Lady Carnarvon once again for coming on the show. If you want to learn more about the history behind the real Downton Abbey, I can't recommend Lady Carnarvon's books enough. They're packed full of details that we could never hope to cover in a single podcast episode. Now, as she explained, there's a few of them that she's written, and while I do recommend all of them, you have to start somewhere, right? So I would recommend starting with Lady Almina and The Real Downton Abbey, and then follow that up with Lady Catherine and The Real Downton Abbey. But really, they're all great. You can't go wrong, whether it's reading about the real history or digging into some of the amazing recipes from Highclere. I'll make sure to add a link to all of Lady Carnarvon's books in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story, podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, there have been royal visits to Highclere Castle like we see in the movie. Number two, the Crawley family in the TV series are based on real people. Number three, there really was someone named Bates at Highclere. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number three. That's true. Even though it was entirely by coincidence and the character of Mr. Bates in the TV series is not based on him, As Lady Carnarvon mentioned, she found that someone named Bates actually was connected to Highclere. That brings us to number two. That is the lie. As Lady Carnarvon explained, the characters in the TV series and the movie are all fictional characters. That means number one is also true. The movie revolves so heavily around a royal visit to Downton Abbey, and as Lady Carnarvon explained, there have been numerous royal visits to Highclere over the centuries. That just about wraps up this episode, but before we go, there's one last thing I think it would be nice to do. I've never heard a podcast share these stats for each episode, but I'm a big fan of being as open as possible, so I figure... Why not? Maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating podcasts like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, here are the final stats for the creation of this episode. Today's episode took a total of 23 hours to create and cost $102.56 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. So that does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter that we talked about, nor does it include any of my ongoing costs. For example, the monthly podcast and website hosting costs. It also doesn't account for any of the time outside the writing, researching, and producing this one episode. For example, the time that it takes to maintain the website and things like that. Don't forget you can help keep Based on a True Story ad-free and independent by supporting the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a way of saying thank you, you'll get access to hours of exclusive bonus content on the producer's feed. If you're not able to support the show monetarily, no problem at all. I'm so happy that you've given me some of your precious time, and I hope you've enjoyed this time together as much as I have. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop on to the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre. 
That's D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Now, if social media isn't your thing, you can always shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.